Let's turn this morning to Galatians chapter 5. We'll continue with that. If you remember last week, I just was, uh, I just was out of control. I, just, I had two or 3,000 more words left after we, I was, we ran out of time. So uh, this is part two, basically, of the moral imperative. So uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from Galatians chapter 5. Our Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit, we pray, that it might fill our hearts and our minds, that we would not just read these words, but these words would penetrate us, they would dwell within us, that our lives would reflect your grace and mercy as demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray, amen. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, carousing, and things like these. Remember, that gives us, this is just a demonstration. There are many more things he could put on that list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are re- habitual, unrepentant practicers of these types of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, last week we began to look at this and, and the question of, of the moral imperative, basically how then shall we live? And that's what the, the weight that's put upon us is how shall we then live? And the question came from the evangelical ethicist Francis Schaeffer in his book by the same title. And we reviewed a little bit of that. We reviewed also uh, some the five concepts of Richard Niebuhr and how the church and the culture interact. And we also looked at Immanuel Kant, uh, a purely uh, non-believing philosopher who said that uh, immorality is irrational. And, and I'm, I'm kind of good with that, you know, because usually if you do something bad, uh, it, it, it turns out to be bad. There are bad consequences. If I do something that is immoral, there are plenty of pitfalls that awaits, await me because of that. Now, it might be fun for the moment, but the consequences usually last much longer. We also reviewed the secularist's call to the evangelical church that our only hope for survival, the only hope of survival for the evangelical church is to become like the world around us. Okay, that was this one person's um, uh, conclusion. And I'll, I'll just quote this, this, this one part. It's hard to ignore the implication that the only truly tolerable form of religion in the U.S. 
is a private one that comfortably aligns with the country's changing mores. Remember, the, the only way the evangelical church is going to survive, that was his conclusion, is if we become like the world around us and don't rock the boat. Then we, become, we, don't, we lose the distinctive of being the church. That was a non-believer who, had, who saw an important place for the church in society, but his conclusion was the church has to look like society. Now this call or command which is the Lord gives us to live in a way that adheres to his word and not this world is laid out for us in a rather objective standard when we come to Galatians chapter 5. The first section is how not to live and the second section is how we are supposed to live. So to live in accordance with Christ the way we're supposed to we have to walk in the spirit. So we'll look quickly at the, uh, the four categories that he gives us of how not to live and some of the uh, results of that, and then we will look at how we are to walk in the Spirit. And then next week and through the summer, we will look at the nine portions of the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says, and we'll begin here in, um, chapter, in verse 19, these are the deeds of the flesh and they are evident, Okay. Now, there are the desires of the heart, which the world may not see, but the deeds of the flesh are the outgrowth of that, and this is what the world sees. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. That is the first category, and they all deal with sexuality here. And Paul mentions three different kinds. One is simply immorality, and then the other two are, are, are um, uh, um, uh, more, more perversions after that. Okay, now it's hard to escape these things in our society. It's almost 24-7 bombarding us with these types of messages, either through advertising, uh, through uh, television shows, through the internet. Um, uh, a little survey of television shows us that in our present world, um, both passively and actively, passively meaning I'm just sitting there watching television, a show that I trust, and on comes a commercial about uh, something I don't want to see, or, okay, or something that, that my children do not need to see, this advertisement, but it is coming at us in all forms. So two out of every three television shows has some sexual co content involved in it, two out of three. And the percentage of occurrences that deal with this in the context of marriage or talks about the dangers of this outside of marriage are simply negligible. You can't even measure that as something that is noticeable. And of course, you have the, the uh, Internet, and you say, well, nobody knows that what, what I'm watching on the Internet but me, and I, my response is that God knows very well what we all see on the Internet. Okay? And in this area of purity in particular the church has to stand outside of society we cannot go along with society if our lives if our marriages our, if our practices are not in line with biblical standards then we're sunk and paul makes this very clear here he says immorality impurity and sensuality these things cannot be known in us all right now but it has almost become a norm in society to accept these things and to participate in these things. Let's just look at one area um, that, that I picked out. There could be many areas, but one area that seems to be 
uh, that strikes at the very core of purity and chastity, and that would be cohabitation prior to marriage. Cohabitation prior to marriage. As I said, it has almost become the norm in society, but it eats away at, at covenant, it eats away at commitment, it eats away at lifelong promises, which form the basis of our marriage and our relationship before the Lord. Cohabitation develops a temporary mindset of relationships. And studies, and and all this is not just opinion, these are from studies that have been done over the years, that mindset carries over into the marriage. The moral imperative for us is purity and faithfulness. So let me quote a little bit from an article from the New York Times. Now, you would not expect to see this information in the New York Times, but you would expect to see the conclusion that is reached with this information, and you'll see that in just a moment. Cohabitation in the United States has increased by more than 1,500% in the past 50 years. The majority of young adults in their 20s will live with a romantic partner at least once, and more than half of all marriages will be preceded by cohabitation. About two-thirds of those in their 20s who were polled said they believe that moving in together before marriage was a good way to avoid divorce. Okay, now just think, think secularly about that. Well, I'm going to practice, I'm going to figure out if this person is really the person for me, and once we have determined that, then our marriage will be so much stronger because we've done our homework, so to speak. But that belief is contradicted by reality. Couples who cohabit before marriage especially before any engagement or other clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not live together before marriage. Okay, So everybody who's not married here, don't go around thinking that, well, I'm going to practice and live with somebody before marriage and then my marriage will be so much better and so much happier. That is not what the studies show. If you live together before you're married, your marriages are statistically and typically less likely to succeed. These negative outcomes are called the cohabitation effect. Research suggests that the higher divorce rates are a result of cohabitation itself and not societal or cultural factors such as the ideal that cohabitators are less uh, conventional about marriage and then perhaps more open about divorce religious and political views and education levels had no bearings on the findings it was across the board culturally here now as i said last week and as we'll look at in the coming weeks society is not even asking the questions or not even thinking about the questions in the same way that the church thinks about or the church asks questions and and this hit me yesterday and I, I told the Sunday school class that I watched this show, and, and I have to confess to you, Abby and I are sitting there watching Say Yes to the Dress yesterday. Okay, if you've got daughters, then you've got to watch this show, okay, because it's all about picking out a wedding dress and all the drama that's involved. And I told her that she's not going to pick out a wedding dress unless I go and help her. And you know how much traffic, how much success that got, okay? Um, so... So here, the, the one show is all about brides who are pregnant and finding a wedding dress that will fit them. 
because they want to look good and they all want you know the white dresses and they all want the big weddings and they're all going to be eight months pregnant by the time they walk down the aisle and you know you've got the 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 seamstress who has to adjust the dress and everything and they they asked this one woman and she was talking about her wedding and she says well we never gave any consideration to any sort of taboo or anything about being pregnant and walking down the aisle and, and that really demonstrated kind of the mindset. There's nothing wrong with that. In the secular world, there was no concept that perhaps that was out of order. You know, perhaps that something wasn't right there. So evidently, they've been involved in activity that will contribute to their wedding and their marriage being less successful. But there wasn't even a thought that they had done anything inappropriate or wrong. There's also a distinct difference in how men and women view the purpose of cohabitation. Women are more likely to see it, I'm I'm quoting the article again, more likely to see it as a step toward marriage, while men are more likely to see it as a way to test a relationship or postpone commitment. And this gender, it says, this gender asymmetry is associated with lower levels of commitment even after the relationship progresses to marriage. You think, oh, we're going to practice, we're going to be even more committed once we get married. No, you will be less committed when you get married. That's what the studies and the statistics show. When you live together prior to marriage, you are much less committed afterwards. Now, we can all go, well, I know somebody who lived together, and, and they're still married. They've been married for 25 years, and they seem happy. That's the anomaly. That is the anomaly. One thing men and women do agree on, however, and this is the findings, is that their standards for a living partner are lower than they are for a spouse. Ooh. Their standards for a living partner are lower than they are for a spouse. And at the end of the article, this is the conclusion that is drawn. Cohabitation is here to stay, so let's find a way to make it work. What? This is classic human rationality here, rationalization. Here is something that is not working, that is having debilitating consequences on many who participate in the majority that participate in it. But let's not change it and focus upon the hard work of commitment and faithfulness and and chastity, those things that really take work. Let's just keep doing it and because we can't stop it, okay? There, there's there's, a, there's a, a, the steam, the, the snowball is rolling downhill and there's no way to stop it. So I know it's going to ruin lives, but we're just going to continue to do it. That is the conclusion. These things of purity and chastity and faithfulness, they are hard. Yes, they are out of step with society, but they work. Living happily ever after is so much harder if you live together before marriage. That's what the studies show. That's what Scripture will show. So Paul says you can't live this way. You can't live in immorality. You can't live in impurity. You can't live in sensuality. That's the first category. The second category that he uses in verse 20 is religious heresy. Idolatry and sorcery idolatry and sorcery in Galat- in, in the Galatian church 
there are two kinds, in, and in Galatians as in the, the letter, there are two kinds of religion. You have the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine grace. And they are very different. If it isn't divine grace in Christianity, it's human achievement, it's the work of the flesh. Okay, from Paul's teaching on idolatry in his other letters, we learn that idolatry is not merely worshiping an image, but it's so often involved in the pagan practices, um, the pagan feast and the pagan uh, sexual activity within that type of worship. And when he mentions sorcery here, it's very interesting. The word sorcery or witchcraft is the word that we get our English word pharmacy from. Now, that, that was a shock to me, but when you when you dig it out, what it says is that these pagan um, sorcery practices, these practices of witchcraft, often involved um, the mixing up of potions, and those potions, when you go back historically, were meant as poisons to kill the enemies of the people who practiced these divinations. And throughout history, drugs are almost always associated with these practices, all the way back into Baal worship, Canaanite practices, the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel mention it, Aristotle mentions it, all of these things of mixing drugs and witchcraft together. And Revelation chapter 9, the end time, says the religion of Satan will be associated with sorcery. So the third group, social conflict, the second half of verse 20. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Now this is a whole category, and there are a pretty long list of things that Paul says you've got to stay away from, and he gives them to a church that must be, there must be these things within this church causing this social conflict. Now the attitudes and actions that destroy personal relationships, that destroy the, the bond of the body of Christ, they bring us into conflict. This must have been a great area of need in the Galatian churches. Churches, uh, as he says, Christians were biting and devouring one another. Okay? The Galatian churches were divided into antagonistic factions. And this was driven by those who wanted to go back to practicing the law and not living by grace. No, you've got to cross your T's, you've got to dot your I's, you have to observe the law. And Paul says, no, that's not what we're about. We're about the gospel of grace here. And while these, these people were trying to enforce the law upon everybody else, their lives were filled with the deeds of the flesh. Okay? Now do as I say, not as I do. That's basically what they were saying. You go and we're going to make you live this way while we go off and live however way we want to live. Now Charles Spurgeon comments on this. He says, When dogs and wolves bite one another, it is according to their nature. But it is bad indeed when sheep take to biting one another. If I must be bitten at all, let me rather be bitten by a dog than by a sheep. That is to say, the wounds inflicted by the godly are far more painful to bear and last much longer than those caused by wicked men. It is natural that the serpent's seed should nibble at our heel and seek to do us injury. But when the bite comes from a brother, from a child of God, then it is particularly painful. I've lived long enough to see churches absolutely destroyed, Spurgeon says, not by any external attacks, but by internal contention. So for Spurgeon, 
He's arguing that perhaps the foremost mark of the moral imperative in the life of the believer is caring for the body of Christ, is not acting like the world acts, but acting as, as if we're all parts. I'm, I'm an ear, and you're a toe, and you're a hand, and you're a foot. We are all part of this body of Christ, and we should treat one another differently than the world outside treats each other. Okay, the last category, verse 21, drunkenness, carousing, and of course, and things like these. So the list goes on. Paul concludes the list with these two terms which refer to drinking and wild parties that were in particular given to uh, honor in the Roman world the, the god of wine, Bacchus. And they would have these big parties. And Paul is concerned here that because that was such a part of the Galatian community that they would spill right over into the church and they would become the norm within the church. Remember, Paul has to uh, correct the uh, church at Corinth because they were having a, a big blowout before the Lord's Supper. He says, no, you can't do this. And his concern is that they will carry these practices from the pagan, the worship of pagan gods right into the church itself. And we have to understand that when Christianity came along, it really threw society for a loop because Christians began to act in ways that were not the norm. They began to act in what we would call moral or ethical ways. Women, no matter what the class they were in, were no longer considered to be property. Okay? Children were no longer abandoned by their father because he didn't like the way they looked. In fact, Christians were the ones who came along and collected the children who Roman fathers had abandoned and took them in and began to care for them. Widows, orphans, the poor, the traveler, all these were cared for by the believers, by the church. Drunkenness, adultery, premarital sex, domestic abuse, they were all considered bad by the church. And the church did their best to avoid those things. So part of the draw of Christianity in the first century was really the distinctive lives that they lived. And in order to go against the grain, like they did, they had to walk according to the Spirit. So, after all that, let's go and look at walk according to the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Walking by the Spirit implies daily progress. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. There are basically two parts to walking by the Spirit. There's our effort, and then there's the power and the direction of our Heavenly Father in that life. So walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit are equated. Turn over a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And here we see the great similarity between walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. And what happens then? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart, always giving thanks to the Lord uh, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So being filled with the Spirit, the Greek says, is a continuous exercise. It is not a one-time thing. 
I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm good for the rest of my life. No, you are to, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as a believer at the moment of conversion you are, but you need to walk according to the Spirit each and every day. Look at verse 18, that last little section. It says, but be filled with the Spirit. If you take the Greek and you look literally at what it says, it says, be being kept filled with the Spirit. Be being kept. That means do it all the time. That means it's a continuous process your entire life that you must work at being kept and filled with the Spirit. And, and being filled with the Spirit conveys the idea, here you are a sailing ship and the wind fills the sails and it drives you along. It's the same concept as we understand being filled with the Spirit. It drives us along. And the results, as we reread, Really, the results continue in verse 19 all the way into chapter 6 in the way that we treat one another, the way that we submit to the Lord, the way that we care for each other. This is a result of being filled with the Spirit. So, walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. Let's go to one more place. Turn over a couple more pages to Colossians chapter 3. Walking, being filled, are both equated with the indwelling of the Word. With the indwelling of the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. When the Word of Christ dwells in you, you understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. Verse 16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admon- and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in our hearts to god whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of our lord jesus christ giving thanks through him to god the father very similar than what we have read in ephesians and what we have read in galatians and it goes on to speak similarly, similarly about how husbands are to treat their wives, wives to treat their husbands, children and parents. All these interactions go on. And being filled by the Spirit means taking my Bible and studying it and reading about Christ until He and His purposes have so saturated my life that He dominates my thoughts and dominates my actions. Well, Rand, I just want to be filled with the Spirit. Don't you have a, a formula? that I can get it and go on and never have to worry about it again? No. The formula is this. Do this every day. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly each and every day and apply it each and every day and you will walk by and with and in the Spirit. That's the formula. Walking in, walking by, having the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, they're all the same things. All the same things. Go back to Galatians. We'll see the result here. Galatians chapter 5, 16. Why is it so critical to keep on being filled with the Spirit? Why is it so critical to walk in the Spirit? Why is it so critical to let the Word of Christ continually dwell within us richly? We have two reasons. Chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not, what? Carry out the desires of the flesh. And we just saw what all the desires of the flesh were. We broke them into three categories. 
You will not do these things. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now understand, there's always a battle going on in believers. Okay? There's always this battle that, that yeah, I, I, I got these desires, and they're the flesh, not this flesh, but the, the sinful flesh that, that Paul talks about often in my heart. And I want to do those things. But if my heart and my mind are filled with the things of the Word and filled with the Spirit, then I have a, a way to battle against those. Because it is a battle all our lives. I mean, tell me the day that you have not faced a temptation. Tell me a day when you have not faced the temptation to speak poorly about someone or think some thought that was bad. We face it each and every day. It's just the way of our world. It's the way of our sinful flesh. Here it is. I have this desire, but I must battle against it, and the Lord gives us the tools to do so. Okay, keep your finger in Galatians 5 and also be able to turn to Galatians 2. We're going to see a little comparison here. Galatians 5, 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. That's that desire in my heart. That's the way he's using that word. This is the desire. This is, this is the call upon my life to live in a sinful fashion. But Galatians 2.20, okay, that's one that we should all have memorized. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. See the difference between the flesh and the I, Okay. This is the sinful desire. But I as a person, I have been crucified with Christ. But yet I live. It's not I who live, but who lives within me. But Christ who lives within me. See, we, we, we see this comparison. It's this flesh. It's this sinful desire. If you live according to the Spirit, you can overcome this sinful desire. Why? Because we have been crucified with Christ. And the second reason, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Galatians, these guys wanted the Galatian church to live under the law. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. Because if you want to live by the law, you're going to be judged by the law. My friends, none of us are perfect. We go back and, and look at those four categories of sin that Paul talks about. Okay, the sexual sin, the, the heresy, the social sin, the drunkenness. Okay, each of us have been involved in some fashion in some of those activities. But, but because Christ has called us, we understand that those things don't lead us to happiness. Those things don't lead us to where we want to go. It is only Christ who will take us there. It is only Christ and His power that can fill us. We are to live differently than the world. And sometimes, some days, some years, it's not always very easy. But if we're going to walk according to the Spirit, if we're going to live in the Spirit, if we're going to let the Word of Christ dwell within us richly, then we can live in the way that Christ calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, you lay this out before us and call us to a life that is very, very different Yes, there are, there are things in society that have simply become the norm. But they're not the norm according to your word. And we're called to live according to your word, not according to the world. And we do it imperfectly, Lord. 
but you're gracious and you are merciful. You tell us how we can find joy. You tell us how we can find peace. When the word of Christ dwells within us richly, when our hearts, that our minds, and our very lives are so saturated with the things of Christ that they pour from our actions, our attitudes, our very being, Lord, this is what you call us to, even in a world around us that rebels against that, that may hate us for living in that fashion. But yet that is the moral imperative that you place upon us, to live as Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.